The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. This is episode 353, and I have Lynn and Linda with me once again. Uh, last week we talked about essentials of a youth retreat, and Lynn gave a great answer. I'm looking forward to hearing what, what Linda says. A lot of pressure, Linda, because uh, uh, Lynn, Lynn set the bar really high. Um, now, uh, Linda, what would you say is an essential of a youth retreat? Yeah. So it's funny that Lynn brought up sleep because one of the things I think through is, okay, what is a retreat? What are we trying to accomplish in that? And I think rest is an essential element of that. And you can think through rest in a lot of categories. One of them would be sleep. Second one I'll add to that is what are like things we can do that are refreshing and like life-giving to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could certainly think about that in a spiritual aspect, right? Like I really hope we all realize we're going to do something spiritual on retreats, but apart from that too, like activities that would be fun and joyful for everyone, you know? And so fun is an essential of a youth retreat. Um, if we are just, you know, going from like thing to thing and spending like three hours, um, in a meeting and then three hours and then I don't, you know, like there has Mm -hmm. to be fun. Um, it creates memories for the students, which I think mm-hmm. is so great for building community because they're building memories together. Totally. But also they just need a lot of time to do things that are enjoyable and life-giving to them. Um, mm-hmm. And they would walk away from the retreat going, you know what, I feel, um, I feel refreshed and fulfilled in some ways, not only spiritually, but also just I did some things that were real enjoyable. I think that that mm-hmm. really matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we've said on this podcast, and we'll continue to say that, you know, we want to be cautious of just being all fun and games in student ministry. Um, and we want to be go deep with students in theology and doctrine and um, emphasizing the importance of the preaching and teaching of the word, but let's not, miss the fact that fun is a good thing, uh, an important thing. It's part of, you know, as we talk about recreation, we, we hear the, the word recreation there and thinking creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Um, fun is a part of that. Games are a part of that. And that's, that's important. Um, so yeah, I'm glad, glad you're bringing that up. Uh, Linda, what do you, what do you think about not only sleep, but kind of maybe the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> sleep can be fun. Sleep but, you is know, so fun. So, yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better than waking up refreshed. So fun. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that's great, Linda. And it's good for me to remember uh, as I plan retreats and whatnot, what is fun for the students, not as what right. is fun for me, mm, right? Because those are different things. And what is fun for them together if we're going on a middle school and high school retreat or but to really cultivate that for the students because it is for them, right? Like, um, so that's, that's a good note. And it's good for me to practice selflessness in that of like, I hate this game, but they love it. So we're going <laughs> to play it. Yeah. So. yeah. But really, I mean, and you can pitch that as you're talking about creating a culture uh, to sleep as well in the last episode. To me, it's, 
it's the, you know, I always get this wrong and I've said it on this podcast before the same, uh, one side of the same coin, you know, one side of the coin is rest and one side of the coin is, is fine that you can't really have fun unless you're resting that your rest feeds your fun and the fun and rest and, and all that kind of goes together. Um, but I can remember too, and this is just a, I don't know if it's a pro tip or not, you know, that typically on a retreat, uh, people put up, you know, the schedule, but they also put up rules and instead of having rules at the top, we would entitle it ways to have more fun um, <laughs> because our, our rules. And we think about the boundaries the Lord sets up. It's not to be a killjoy. He's actually trying to give us more fulfillment. And so it's like, we're putting these things up to, to say, Hey, look, you can actually have more fun if you abide by these rules too. So, um, just kind of tying into your, your theme of fun. Um, any other thoughts there before we close this out? All right. Well, uh, once again, and I'm starting to get some of these uh, episodes, uh, I guess they're all kind of tying together, but I think I'll have Lynn and Linda again in the next segment of Technically Speaking. So we'll see if you guys are with us or not. Everything's kind of uh, blending together, so I don't know at this point. But hey, thank you all for this essential. Everybody, I'm back with Linda and Lynn. We're discussing the Jonathan Haidt article from The Atlantic uh, entitled Facebook's Dangerous Experiment on Teen Girls. Um, and I guess, you know, we didn't explicitly say as we're, uh, as the, the title is Facebook's Dangerous Experiment on Teen Girls, uh, Facebook bought Instagram. And so we've been talking about Instagram this entire time. Um, and even though the, the title highlights that, um, yeah, I want to make sure people are, are clear that uh, Mark Zuckerberg bought that way back in the day. Um, I, do, do y'all remember off the top of your head? I can't remember the year that it was purchased or if it said that or not. Um, so in, in this uh, last segment, you know, we said last week we want to give possibly some solutions, some guidance, some conclusions just to draw from uh, some of this article. Um, I did like how he begins this section talking about a, a dose response relationship. Um, and, uh, Andrew Bosworth, uh, is, uh, someone who kind of spoke out and said, yeah, okay. Um, uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram might have some issues surrounding it, but it's not like nicotine. You know, he says he kind of compares it more to sugar that, you know, sugar can be a good thing. It can be an okay thing, but too much of it can be a bad thing. And he says, just like salt, just like alcohol or other substances that are dangerous in large doses, but harmless in small ones. And so he's saying, look, you just kind of use Instagram in small doses and you'll be okay. But Jonathan Haidt uh, pushes back pretty strongly on that. And he says, look, uh, social media platforms are not like sugar. And this really goes back to, I can't remember which one of you highlighted this, but um, Lynn, it might've been you that, uh, you know, girls, when they were off of Instagram, they're still thinking about all that they posted on Instagram. It wasn't like, you know, boys playing video games that they would continue to think about it. And so he's saying, you know, sugar, salt, alcohol doesn't bother us when we're not using it, <laughs> you know, like um, social media does that even when we're off of it, it continues to just kind of impact us. Um, so just some response to that thoughts to that other sections to kind of highlight, and then maybe we'll get into some solutions. Um, I'm so, I would be so curious to know what Bosworth thinks 
is small dose, a small dose, mm-hmm. right? Because even in yeah. the last uh, the last episode, we mentioned the experiment that they did with giving uh, youths uh, seven minutes of exposure, and they already saw like measurable effects from that. So I'm I would guess that Bosworth, unless he saw this research, he would probably say, oh, maybe like ten minutes or so, mm-hmm. unless you know he's playing us and he's like, yeah. Uh, a small dose is, you know, three seconds, like open the page and close it. Um, but uh, he later, uh, Jonathan says, this framing the, the dose response relationship implies that any health problems caused by social media results from the user's lack of self-control. Um, and I think that is going back to like his idea of like only those who overindulge are really affected. Like that just seems like an uninformed, like, clearly he's mm-hmm. not but not swimming in the water right now um and i'm i wonder if people at facebook are addicted to instagram or do mm-hmm. they know better right um whatever it is um but yeah social media platforms are not like sugar that's um simple enough i thought this was a um it'll get into the uh solutions that we're going to talk about but later he talks about uh like how play strengthens friendships like these interactions that they Mm -hmm. can have online that can be a good thing and uh, like most things like within the right boundaries feedback in a low stakes environment I think the big one of the big problems is it's not a low stakes environment like when my boss has a critical piece of encouragement to offer me right he doesn't do it in front of all of the staff members. He does it in my office or in his office on a one-on-one or in a smaller uh, thing. And that's not what's happening on Instagram. You know, when mm-hmm. they um, say like, oh girl, you're too chunky to be wearing that skirt or whatever it is. It's a public thing mm-hmm. for everybody to see. That's not a low stakes environment. That's that's rough, man. Um, yeah. It's like standing and just being hit with tomatoes, just offering yourself up like a sacrifice. But the reward is also just as public when somebody's like, oh, you look good, girl, then everybody mm-hmm. sees that too. And it's um, a huge, it, I guess, uh, an effect in the opposite uh, the opposite side, but in the same proportion. Like that hits harder because everybody can see that. That wasn't just a little note they left on your desk. Um, that yeah. was just for you. That's a that's a good point, and just to highlight the the spectrums of the the harsh comments as well as the comments where they're being praised, um, and just the the kind of dangers of both of those. I thought something that he pointed out that was interesting too is just you know those who choose uh, reading from the article, those who choose not to play the game are cut off from their classmates. So basically, again. Um, as what we've talked about, not only those who are on Instagram all the time, but then even those who aren't a part of it, um, they're pulled into some of this trap as he talks about, uh, because they're missing out. They're not, this is their social language. And so maybe speak on that a little bit. Um, Linda, I don't know if you want to speak on that of, of students who aren't even involved in it and how they're being impacted as well. Yeah. The thing reading over that right now that gets me when he's talking about that is that he's saying these social media platforms are wired into the way teens interact much as the telephone became essential to past generations. I I connect with that because I think about how often I was calling my friends and, you know, it was in the midst of my teen years that it started becoming a little more common for people to have cell phones. And Mm -hmm. I got a cell phone when I was 16, I was a little bit behind some of my friends. Um, But I can't imagine what my social life would have been like if I hadn't had 
some way to contact them. You know, like we we would talk on the phone on our landlines before we had cell phones, but then we also used like AOL Instant Messenger and it just um, totally would have changed my social life if I hadn't had that. And I, you know, that's one way we can kind of begin to understand what it's like for teens and why they feel they need to be on these platforms because that's where everybody's connecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are thoughts on that? And I mean, we'll, we'll get into, I don't know if this is getting into some of the maybe solutions, but you know, for the, the parents that are listening to this, for the students that are not on Instagram, you know, what are, what are some thoughts that you have of how do you try to encourage these students? How do you try to help the, these, these parents? Because, yeah, you know, as a parent, you hate to see your child uh, to, be, to be left out, you know, and to be the one that doesn't have. So what are some thoughts on, on that, Lynn or Linda? We've talked in the past, it came up, um, I think when we were talking about another technology podcast and like Willis Weather, uh, well, Willis was there, uh, Weatherford, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, Chris was there and um, we were talking about it is good for students to learn how to be the only one not doing something and mm-hmm. to do that gracefully um, and graciously and humbly um, but to do it well, because and, and parents need to be able to navigate those conversations of recognizing this must feel so like so excluding and like you are an outcast. And I recognize that. And uh, my desire, you know, if it's a parent, uh, I mean, it clearly would be a parent's decision to say, like, you're not going to have this, you know, like our desire to protect you from the harmful effects has put you in this position and we we get that and and we're sorry that's happened um but we care about you so much that the negative effects aren't worth you being able to engage in this conversation aren't worth you um feeling like you fit in aren't worth you knowing what everybody's posting about um or you know asking them like what's a good way that you think we can like moderate this do you think we can get you an Instagram that we like scroll together. So we both can like just, just asking them what they think would be a good middle place as opposed to just telling them, nope, don't touch it. Right. Because then it works in extremes. The same thing with alcohol. If, if students never learn how to use something um, intelligently and wisely, then they're, they're going to go overboard in learning of, you know, learning by mistake um, through their mistakes or whatnot. Um, uh, I forgot what the original question was. Uh, no, that, that's good. No, it's of, uh, you know, those students who come up to you and, you know, don't have it at all. And it's kind of like, how, how, what kind of advice do you give them? And I think that's very good to, to, to teach them what, what it feels like to, to miss out and to, to say, look, that's, that's really part of the Christian life that we are going to be isolated in a lot of ways. We're going to look foolish in the eyes of the world. And so that's a, a good lesson. And really, I, I think that kind of segues into to some solutions, you know, as we're, we're talking about this, I think youth workers hearing this, that telling students, I mean, look, 
the way you use social media needs to look different from the world. You know, maybe not even getting into the specifics of what that needs to look like, but just the general challenge to students of, hey, listen, you need to look different in the way you use social media and letting them kind of, again, the Spirit, Holy Spirit kind of take over in their conscience of what that should look like. I think that's an important message of, of one of the solutions to some of this. Um, Linda, uh, I guess, yeah, putting you, not to put you on the spot, but what, what are some other so- solutions you may have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one of the things I was thinking about was, uh, you know, this whole idea that social media has totally changed the social lives of our teenagers. Um, and I think, first of all, that that uh, is such a good training topic for volunteers and parents. Mm, yeah. Um, I think that they see that somewhat and they're kind of like, I don't, I don't understand what to do with that. I don't understand how to help my teenager navigate this. Um, you know, and I I imagine it could be helpful to a lot of parents, especially, um, to walk them through, okay, let me paint a picture of what the social life of a teenager does look like because of Instagram and whatever, um, and help them really put themselves in the teenager's shoes. Remember what it's like to be a teenager. And then what would it have been like if you'd added all this stuff on top of it, you know, and and teach them like, Hey, be asking your teenager about this and don't just assume, you know, um, why they're frustrated, um, by your rules or don't assume, you know, what they are and aren't doing on social media, all that stuff, like ask them about it, Mm -hmm. um, and empathize with them while giving them the, okay, but we're gonna, you know, try and figure out how to walk through this together kind of stuff. Um, so that, that's one thing I would do. Um, I also, uh, two other things, I think, um, it, we, we had some conversations with students, um, about a hot topic, not too long ago that I just walked away from that thinking like, wow, there's so much going on in, in students' lives and, um, in their hearts that they tend to think they can't, talk about um Mm. only because all the adults in their lives are not talking about it and so i started thinking about what are all the other things that we're we're just not bringing up the topic and so they don't know if they can bring it up um and i don't want social media to be one of those topics that they feel like they can't bring up all that they're um struggling with because of it and so i think that as adults um youth leaders parents we we need to be bringing up this conversations so that students feel like it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to talk about our struggles with it. Um, yeah. Cause otherwise they might just feel like, well, that that's sort of um, not something that we, we talk about here. Um, and the last thing I was thinking about um, just relates to what Lynn brought up earlier about the, um, the benefits of play. Um, which in order for students to get those benefits of, of the play and interaction that happens in person, they have to get away from their devices for some amount of time. And I think that what the article is talking about there is just another piece of why it can be so beneficial to have guidelines and rules around devices, especially on retreats. Um, you know, when we're away for a weekend or a week and we're saying, hey, students don't have their phone or they're only allowed to have their phone for like 30 minutes today or whatever it is 
it forces them to engage in relationships and to learn from that. And it gives them rest from Mm -hmm. the stress of social media and all the need to perform and the wondering if people are liking the thing that I just posted because they didn't just post something, Um, you know, and I think, I think they need that rest from it coupled with the real joy of like real relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I know I've heard things where, you know, they've uh, forced students like on various retreats to take a break or they've taken up their, their phones and you hear the student's testimony of, okay, I hated it and I didn't want to do it. But once I did it, I actually felt better and I ended up, you know, enjoying it. And so it's, it's interesting that, you know, to, to say that as encouragement, that it's worth the fight to, to put that forward for, for those youth workers that are out there. Um, I can remember, I mean, this was a fight on youth retreats to have some kind of electronic device policy, not just fights from the students, fights from some of the parents uh, who were very overprotective. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's a good word. Uh, Lynn, what are some solutions that you uh, want to highlight? Yeah, I, and I will preface this that I do not have any of children of my own, but I, and I, Linda, I know as well, we have worked with teenagers, middle school and high schoolers longer than you will have a teenager and a middle schooler. So sometimes <laughs> I it. get so frustrated when parents dismiss, like, well, you don't have your own kids. It's yeah. not the same. Well, I've, I, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I'm glad, I'm glad you say that, by the way. That's good. That's a good word. Um, it goes um, back to the, the play thing. Um, so Jonathan says getting repeated feedback in a low stakes environment is one of the main ways that play builds social skills, physical skills, and the ability to properly judge risk. And I underlined that twice. And I said, this is parenting, right? This is your student does something, your child does something, and you give them, this is good parenting, right? And you give them feedback in a low stakes environment. I remember being on the marching band field in high school. There were almost 500 people in our marching band. That's false. Sorry. 500 people in class. There were almost 300 people in our marching band. And my mom yelled some like critical things at my sister from the sideline. Like, and my mom's not a quiet woman, Uh, but, and that's not a low stakes environment. That wasn't a good choice. Um, And, but the feedback is important. Like, okay, if you perform in this way, it's not good for students only to receive feedback. It's not good for anybody to only receive feedback when it has built up to the point that you are like, this is it, this is the final straw. No, we should have talked about this at straw two, at straw three, at straw four, right? Like these reiterations, students are learning. They are learning how to be people. And so Mm -hmm. it's not helpful when you're like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna address this. I'm not gonna address it the next time they do this. That's not helpful. Um, Having giving continual feedback that, okay, you know what? Like you went to out, you snuck your phone out of my room when I told you you couldn't have it. That's not acceptable behavior. And here are the consequences of that, as opposed to like just kind of dismissing it. Or I told you not to look at these accounts. And when I check your phone, because I'm your parent, I have the prerogative to do that. When I check your phone, I see that you've been looking at these accounts. Then this is the cause of this. Like that's a low stakes. Um, environment that that helps them learn how to navigate those boundaries and also shows you as consistent as a parent and it's not just um, a reactive thing and so I think that's one of the 
solutions here as parents intervening before it's the last straw or before it's gotten to be a problem, right? Like you shouldn't wait to see negative effects before you help, um, right? Like you don't want to realize that your friend's an alcoholic and that's when you come in. You want to see, you want to talk to them when you notice like, hey, I've noticed that you've like been like, your house is always fully stocked when I come Mm -hmm. over, you know, is that like, is that okay? And I'm asking because I care about you and I love you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Linda, brilliant about the training. Yes. Mm-hmm. Jonathan brings up later that one of the um, researchers said parents can't understand and don't know how to help. And then I just wrote myself a, a, a thing on the side of do parents know how to have conversations without accusations or overgeneralizations, right? Like, I don't know if parents feel fully equipped to have these conversations. And that's why they don't know how to help. Like, well, I don't know how to talk to them about this. Well, the worst case scenario is you try talking to them about it and they know that you want to try talking about it and it's awkward for everybody. And then you move on and you Mm -hmm. try it again better later. Um, But we, as your youth people want to help you and equip you in that. And training is such like a brilliant idea when when Mm -hmm. it's so um, such a simple thing to invite parents of like, hey, I can help you like pose some of these questions or think about these things. Um, and there was one thing, and this is the last thing I'll say, there's one no, thing good. that outraged me in this article, and it's not from the article, but the fact that e-commerce companies lobbied successfully to have the age of internet adulthood set at 13. I was like, I don't trust 13-year-olds to tell me if they want gum or not. Like, I this is crazy. <laughs> That was crazy. That that internet adult, any kind of adulthood at 13, insane. Like that shows me that I shouldn't trust anything that they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Outrage is a good word for that. Um, I'm, I'm with you totally on that. Um, and I think it's a good word as you're talking about kind of having the conversation and knowing that it's awkward. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's such an important solution that seems so obvious, but that we need to continue to, to impress is, is having conversation and kind of elaborating on that, having for parents specifically, having open, transparent conversation for parents to even say, listen, I don't understand all the you know intricacies of this, but just know I love you and I'm trying to help you and I'm concerned as a parent and I know I'm going to fail as a parent, but I'm trying to help. It's like, to me, to be that transparent as a parent to your child um, is vital in this, that you've got to just admit you're, you're a broken sinner trying to lead your child who's a broken sinner through this broken world, that things that are coming about you know, left and right that are terrifying that we just don't know a whole lot about. Um, I also think just kind of another practical one is decreasing the amount of screen time as we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast, but I do know elsewhere, Jonathan Haidt has pointed to that, that there's a lot of statistics that you can debate and you're kind of unsure about, but he said, it's almost, you know, undebatable as screen time goes up, depression and anxiety goes up. So to me, a practical help in that is we'll decrease screen time to, to assist with that. And then the last thing I'll say is community. Um, that's vital um, to get like-minded parents um, together. Um, and I really think youth workers can help facilitate that, to have gatherings at your church where you get parents on the same page and say, look, let's do this as a group of parents um, with our children. Uh, so we're not the only ones, they're not the only ones. And just, again, um, points to the the vital community, uh, the, the vital importance of, of the church. Uh, so... 
Linda, Lynn, there, there's so much more we could talk about. Just reminding people, um, the article written by Jonathan Haidt, The Dangerous Experiment on Teen Girls. It's in the Atlantic. We'll have a link to this uh, in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to come on. This episode of The Local Youth Worker is brought to you by For Life Apparel. For Life Apparel is a new clothing brand whose mission is to provide high-quality clothing and accessories that spread the message of the worth and dignity of the unborn. They donate 25% of all profits to providing free ultrasounds for moms considering abortion. Use the code REFORMED15 for 15% off today. That's Reformed 15 for 15% off today. They have clothing for men, clothing for women, bags, all sorts of accessories. Be sure to visit forlifeapparel.com for more information. Today, I welcome Brett McCracken to the podcast. Brett is a senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition. He's the author of The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World, Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, Gray Matters, Navigating the Space Between Legalism and Liberty, and Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide. Brett and his wife, Kira, live in Santa Ana, California with their two sons. They belong to Southlands Church, and Brett serves as an elder there. Brett, uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you making time. I've had somebody come on before, and in the interview, they told me they were about to leave for an international flight, and I was uh, shocked that they were willing to to come on. But you're you're in a similar situation. You might have to get up and leave because you have a third baby on the way. <laughs> yes, that's true. It, there's the possibility that I'll get a text message in the course of this <laughs> this uh, conversation with saying I need to go to the hospital or something. My wife is on a walk right now. So All right. when you're when you're 39 weeks pregnant and you're ready for the baby to arrive, you tend to go on a lot of walks to try to yes. get things moving. So she's doing that right now. So we'll see. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I appreciate you making the time to come on with all that. And obviously we will excuse you if you need to exit uh, quickly. Um, Brett, I was just saying you, you work at the Gospel Coalition. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about what you do with the Gospel Coalition? Yeah, sure. Um, so my title is Senior Editor and Director of Communications. So there's kind of two parts to my job. One is on the editorial team. So we have a number of editors who produce the content um, for the website, for the Gospel Coalition website. And uh, different editors focus on different subject areas. So I'm the arts and culture editor. So anything related to movies, TV, music, um, et cetera, would be what I oversee in terms of editing that content and writing articles myself. Um, so that's a big part of what I do for TGC. And then director of communications is more kind of behind the scenes stuff, um, overseeing our marketing and um, email strategy and fundraising communications, things like that. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and oftentimes when I'm talking about you to other people, I'll say, you know, the movie guy at the Gospel Coalition, I mean that as a, a positive thing. Uh, just curious, how did uh, culture kind of become your thing? I know you talk a lot about movies, you talk about music. Did you grow up watching a lot of movies, thinking a lot about a lot of movies? I'd love to hear just kind of how you got into that. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in the church. I was a Christian, um, you know, 
from as long as I can remember, grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the Midwest. And um, I would say I always loved movies. It was just one of my loves as a kid. Like I loved going to Steven Spielberg movies. I remember seeing like Jurassic Park when I was a 10 year old, like after basketball camp one summer day. And I just loved it. I loved the experience of movies. I sensed just kind of the magic of it. And maybe even that there was something like that was soul stirring about the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet as a Christian, I, you know, the stereotype is that there's an oppositional relationship with like Christianity and Hollywood and the movies. So mm-hmm. I felt that growing up, I felt like, um, am I allowed to like be a, a Christian and love movies? Like, should I feel guilty about that? And it was, a, it's been a tension in my life, I would say my whole life. Um, but in the last few decades, I think I've come to a place of trying to make the relationship between those two loves of in terms of loving Jesus, loving the church, but also loving film and the arts. Um, I, I've started to see that they can be good conversation partners. And actually there's a lot of fruit that can come from healthy interaction there. Um, but there's a lot of risks as well. And um, I've experienced some of that. And so you have to be careful um, but I, I've sort of made it my um, mission, I guess, vocationally to try to help other Christians navigate that relationship um, in terms of their faith and pop culture. So that's why I write you know, movie reviews. That's why I do what I do at the Gospel Coalition. I'm trying to help Christians have better um, conversations about this stuff and, um, and hopefully to glorify God in the process. So, Yeah. Well, no, I, I, yeah, thank you for that. And I told you a little pre-recording just how, how helpful your reviews are, specifically on on film. And um, it, it's funny as you you mentioned Jurassic Park. That might be the first movie I can remember thinking this is an amazing experience. That um, I don't know how I had not seen any trailers, any previews leading up to that. Big Steven Spielberg fan, and just I was at the beach. And it was a storm that day, and so we went to go see Jurassic Park, and I just remember the theater being packed and just leaving that theater being like, this was an incredible experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that definitely resonates with me. And as you, as you talk about kind of from the earliest, um, you know, parts of your life, kind of wrestling as a Christian of how do I enjoy this? And um, one of the first authors that I stumbled upon was Brian Gadawa that, that was kind of writing on this. Just curious, when did you first kind of read a Christian talking about movies in a way that wasn't so critical or you thought, yeah, this is exactly what I'm trying to get at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely remember reading Brian Gadawa um, in my younger years as well and, and books like that. Um, and I think reading like um, Plugged In and Breakaway Magazine and some of the like, reviews that they would occasionally do of movies um, helped me see that there was a place for it and that you know there was there were Christians attempting to um, interact with film Um, and thankfully like I had even in my like youth group I remember like some of my youth pastors were like actually pretty like engaged with that Um, and we can talk about the whole um, bad bad approach with youth pastors who are trying trying to be too much in terms of pop culture savvy, like everything is a pop culture reference. I don't think that's good, but um, I remember having like good conversations occasionally with my youth pastor about like movies and and things in in pop culture. Um, So it wasn't like 
I ever felt like it was an off limits topic or something that didn't have any place in the church. Um, but I do think going into college, I felt like there was a gap there, like in terms of like robust, meaty um, engagement with movies and pop culture that was that went beyond um, just kind of the uh, counting the curse words level of engagement and went beyond the worldview level in terms of like, I don't know, like that there's a place for that. But like, mm-hmm. I was a really thoughtful kind of nerdy, um, <laughs> philosophical <laughs> high schooler. And I really wanted to go deeper with that as a Christian. And um, so from college onward, I started writing movie reviews for this like student newspaper at Wheaton College. Um, and I just, I just really tried to like fill that gap myself. Like, um, not that I was the only one doing it, but, um, you know, be the change you want to see, right. As the, Mm -hmm. as the slogan goes. So, um, I, that's what I've tried to do. And, um, I I had other really good models of it that I, that I was watching like Jeffrey Overstreet is someone that comes to mind. Um, he was writing the type of like film reviews that I wanted to see more of in terms of a little bit deeper, um, thoughtful engagement. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, and I've got to ask you about the Oscars. Uh, Mm -hmm. I actually had that written down to ask you before. It's a fresh topic. Yeah. (laughs) Before. Yeah. uh, All that, that, that went down at the, the Oscars. Um, Obviously, as I just mentioned, the Oscars, I would assume most people are thinking, okay, yeah, Will Smith, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Rock. Um, sure. I'd love to just kind of hear your your initial thoughts on that. I know no one's just tuning into the local youth worker, just mm-hmm. that's where they, they, mm-hmm. they want to, you know, hear mm-hmm. about all that went down because everyone mm-hmm. has, has mm-hmm. talked about this. But just as believers, kind of stepping back and even thinking about what just occurred, yeah. um, I'd love to hear some of your, just how you're processing it and thinking mm-hmm. through that. Yeah, you know, I... <laughs> I haven't, I can't say that I've given a ton of thought to it. I, there, it was a shocking moment and it's hard to know how to make sense of like, without knowing, you know, the backstory of like Will exactly. Smith and that's the trouble that you run into with trying to overanalyze this, these sorts of things. Like we're the viewing public and we get to watch the incident live on TV, but we don't know what's going on mm-hmm. behind the scenes in terms of Will Smith's life and i know that it's been kind of rocky over the last couple years with his marriage and different things um so i think my main emotion was just sadness um Mm -hmm. sadness for for those two individuals specifically will smith and chris rock but just sadness for the culture because i think that incident um it just kind of exposed how confused our culture is like even will smith's um acceptance speech mm-hmm. where he tr- he was trying to like emotionally like process and defend sort of what he just did and there was talk of god and wanting to be kind of a defender of his family's dignity and a channel of love he used the phrase like a vessel i want to be a vessel for love mm-hmm. and it just made me feel like man um, our secular culture does not have clear answers for these things. Like, um, and, and throughout the Oscar ceremony with different acceptance speeches, um, and various causes that are being advocated and, you know, justice causes, and it's just kind of all over the map Mm -hmm. and it's very messy. 
it just to me it reveals that like there's there's a good impulse at play in our secular culture which is people want to do justice right they want to make their lives and their art and their films matter um, for some purpose beyond themselves but without god and without kind of an overarching moral framework it's just kind of to each their own like whose cause matters most like whose definition of vessel of love are we going to go with in terms of what that actually means does being a vessel for love mean you go up and slap someone who makes a joke about your wife like does being a vessel for love mean you defend this marginalized group instead of this marginalized group like so yeah that was that's kind of a long answer but i just feel like i feel like watching the oscars these days as much as i love movies it's kind of a depressing experience because Mm -hmm. it just there's a lot of confusion uh moral confusion on display totally yeah no i I think that's yeah, that's kind of where I am. I've I've gotten to where I used to love watching the Oscars, and then it's just I don't I can't do it anymore. Like you said, it's just kind of depressing trying to watch it. But I, I think uh, you said it's it's a long answer. I think it's a great answer, and I think honestly, I mean, pointing back to your book, The Wisdom Pyramid, I, I mean, that that's how we need to to process these things. I mean, obviously, beginning with the word as the foundation, but you know, so often all the hot takes that are out there, uh, we just, as believers, maybe push those to the side and let's just step back, read the scriptures, pause, reflect, pray. And I think, as you said, sadness is inappropriate. Um, But because, I mean, as we think of the Oscars, just from a broad perspective, I mean, it's a window into the culture and we're watching the culture process this event, attempt to process it and chime in. Um, So I think it's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can celebrities, like one interesting thing that has happened in our culture is celebrities used to have this hollowed kind of aura around them where they seemed like superhuman. And in recent decades, that's just all gone away. And the humanity of these people has been totally exposed, right? These are flawed people. (laughs) And, um, and I think with what happened with Will Smith, that was another thought I had. It's just like, empathy and sadness for him like he's a broken man clearly there's just a lot of issues that he's dealing with and i'm sure everyone in that room at the theater has these these issues um another one that i felt deep sadness for was elliot page you mm-hmm. know formerly ellen page mm-hmm. you know became a transgender man elliot mm-hmm. and uh so elliot page was presenting and just the image of Elliot uh, with the lowered voice, you know, having watched movies like Inception with Ellen Page and Juno, really good movies, just made me really sad, you know, for for her and for for how confused, you know, she she is and how sad she seemed. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, mm-hmm. we don't want to get into that right now, but it's yeah, that those are a couple examples of how I think it's good as Christians to not only view Hollywood through a culture war lens where it's like defensive and battling the bad ideas, like that's important, but there's an empathy that we need to also cultivate in terms of like, these are sinners, broken sinners who are in need of redemption and grace. And um, we all are right. (laughs) We're all broken. And um, so seeing them as as humans uh, in the way that God would see them, I think is is important. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something it's so easy to lose because we turn them into the characters that they are on, on mm -hmm. the screen and we just forget, okay, these are real people. These are image bearers of God. And yes. um, let's, like you said, empathy, Let, let's think mm -hmm. of, Okay, what 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 kind of conversations were taking place in you know the Will Smith home before they yeah. came to the Oscars and what what's going on behind the scenes there and let's let's yeah. show some grace and I mean I, you know at the same time one thing I want to say is it it, it's, it was pretty impressive to watch Chris Rock as he totally, um, <laughs> totally received all that and mm -hmm. just kept his composure to some degree on stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was impressive as well. So definitely want to to speak to that. And I um, think both of them have issued apologies, which is mm -hmm. refreshing to see how, how quickly they came to, you know, a place of repentance and mm -hmm. recognizing they both had a part to play that was wrong. And um, so I think sure. that, was, that was good to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, just some kind of rapid fire. I'm, I'm curious kind of movie questions for you. Um, what was your favorite movie growing up? When you think back to kind of childhood, uh, what, what would be kind of your one favorite movie that you loved growing up? And it, it can be one that you don't even care for today as you've seen as an adult, but as a child, you loved it. Mm, man, I mean, what comes to mind is like the Indiana Jones movies. Mm. Like I watched those so many times as a kid. Um, <laughs> and for whatever reason, the Temple of Doom was my favorite one, probably because mm. of like the roller coaster moment and like oh, yeah. the, the gory elements um looking back when i watched that movie as an adult i'm like wow how was i allowed to watch that it's, yes it's, it's so dark um <clears throat> but um that comes to mind um let's see like really any of steven spielberg's movies like um like i mentioned jurassic park um yeah goonies i love that's not a spielberg mm -hmm. movie but mm -hmm. i loved goonies um I loved Encino Man. Have you seen that? Uh, yeah. Shore. I think I actually missed that one. Brendan Fraser and Polly Shore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can Brendan remember. Fraser. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that movie coming out. And I mean, Polly Shore was such a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, um, Mrs. Doubtfire. I, I remember having a birthday <laughs> party in like 1993 or whenever that came out. I, for my birthday party, I took my buddies to go see that movie. <laughs> so Robin Williams, of course, was like a favorite actor for that generation hook sure. i loved oh. hook yeah i was just yeah. about to say yeah that one steven spielberg right there yeah i yeah. loved that one yeah those um, are, so those, those are a couple that come to mind but yeah. I mean, we can this could be a separate question but yeah. my favorite movie like starting from high school pr pretty much onward for the next 20 years was the thin red line Terrence oh Lawrence wow movie. yeah so that that was a game-changing movie for me in my like trajectory of film and faith and theology and faith so mm. yeah wow yeah that's quite a jump from uh from hook and uh indiana jones to the thin red line um, no it is it is mm -hmm. for sure but that it was like 15 year jump you know mm -hmm. in time. yeah no it's a funny thing about indiana jones i recently showed those to my two oldest and remember having the similar thought of, wow, Temple of Doom is so dark. And, you know, I've heard kind of the behind the scenes. I think both Lucas and Spielberg were going through a divorce maybe around that time. And they just said they were kind of wrestling with stuff and they realized they made it darker than they intended, but also to just seasonal movies. Do you have some movies that, okay, once a year, you've got to watch this one around Christmas or different, different seasons. Um, I've even had like sleepy hollow has been one of mine for like the Halloween season. Yes. Um, yeah. Fall. And 
apologies, my neighbor's gardener is like going very loudly. <laughs> I don't know if you're picking that up, but uh, slightly, um, but it's not a big deal. Yeah. You're you're totally fine. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Christmas time, Home Alone, like we watch that every year, Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like the um, the 1995 Little Women version with Winona Ryder. I just think that's a really great, like, um, classic film for the Christmas season. Something, uh, an article that I want to point our listeners to, and I just want to remind everyone, we'll put these in the show notes so people can can check these out. But you have an article entitled, Should I Watch This? And you kind of give Christians just five questions uh, to wrestle with, you know, because I've also I've often said that, you know, the rating system can be a helpful guide for us, uh, but that that's what it needs to be. It needs to be a guide that we often you know, want things that are just kind of clear parameters and that's catering to our inner Pharisee that we've got to be more thoughtful and discerning uh, than just kind of abiding by the the ratings system. Um, and so just kind of pointing to that article a little bit, um, maybe what's been the aspect of this entire discussion that, that you find the most challenging kind of personally as you're wrestling with, okay, what I should watch and what I shouldn't watch, what, what are some of these areas that you feel just not as settled on that you're currently continually wrestling with. And does that make sense? That was kind of a weird question. No, that's, that's a great question. Yeah. It's definitely something I'm, I'm still wrestling with, you know, when you're doing what I do for a living, which is trying to engage pop culture from a Christian perspective, there's this tension um, between like wanting to celebrate what is good and true and beautiful in pop culture while also wanting to um, avoid that which is bad and false and ugly. Now the problem, and this is pro- this is maybe my answer to your question in terms of the most challenging aspect of this, is that in any given film or TV show or whatever in pop culture, there's probably gonna be both, right? There's there, <laughs> like, um, think about some of the Oscar nominated films, like. Some of them are exceptionally made, exceptionally well acted. There's a lot of goodness and truth and beauty there. Um, but there's also a lot of like lies and falsehoods and kind of like ugly things that we should avoid as Christians. And so the challenge for me is like, how do you balance that? And like, what tips the scales in terms of like, okay, when do I not feel comfortable recommending something because it may have a lot of good and true and beautiful, but the bad, false, ugly stuff is just too, too bad. Um, so yeah, I would say that's my ongoing challenge. And for all, for every Christian, I think that's that's what makes this conversation hard. Is there are very few things out there that are like a perfect, you know, either like a hundred percent good and pure and mm-hmm. beautiful and true, or a hundred percent like evil, awful, you know, there are things like that where it's just like unquestionable, like don't go there, like sure. not appropriate. And I think the the older I get as a Christian, and I think the more wisdom that I accumulate, the easier it becomes to like go without a lot and basically say, look, I'm not even going to bother with that. Mm-hmm. Like anything that's like, you know that there's just a lot of toxic content, um, explicit sex, whatever, nudity, like 
I'm just not going to bother with that. Um, but it's the stuff that's kind of in between where, yeah, there's some content that's problematic, but, but like it's got an amazing story to tell and it's, it's a beautiful story and there's redemptive elements to it. How do you balance that as a Christian um, in terms of um, knowing that there may be something this film can teach you and you can, there's things to be gained from it in terms of edification. That's a word we use a lot in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Is it edifying? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also a subjective word, right? Like one Christian can say, oh, it was super edifying for me to watch that R-rated movie. And another Christian's like, say what? Like, that yeah. was edifying to you? Like, I don't know what you mean by edifying, but so, yeah, <laughs> it's a long answer, but it's a complicated um, question, so. Yeah, no, it, it needs to be a long answer because it is something that I think kind of as we're the, the tension we're bumping up against, it's not something we're necessarily going to be settled on this side of heaven. Um, and, and tell me if you if you agree with this or not. Um, to me, it seems like some of the difficulty of this question is how filmmakers seem to be honing their craft. You know, that maybe as we were growing up, I think we're, we're close to the same age. Um, horror movies were just kind of, you know, horror movies genre but now we have some horror movies that are really telling good stories and really getting in depth and so uh, do you agree with that kind of react to that a little bit i'd love to hear you yeah i mean the the horror part is but you're you're totally right about that genre like there's there's a term now it's called like um elevated horror mm -hmm. um it's kind of like the a24 films that are being released and it's like horror movies that have like an important message or, you know, whatever. And so that does introduce a complexity because if the, if the equation for Christians is, is there enough good and true and beautiful to justify me watching this? Well, some horror movies now have a viable claim that they are advocating um, important themes and ideas. Um, it used to be easy as Christians to be like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm, I'm just not going to watch those like slasher films because there's nothing edifying there. Um, but yeah, so mm -hmm. I think you're right. The, the, and it, it kind of speaks to what I alluded to when we were talking about the Oscars. Like, I think there's more of a sense now in Hollywood, whatever you're, whatever genre you're in, like, it seems like everyone wants to make important movies these days. And so there's a, there's this earnest desire to kind of um, to actually explore true things and to explore in a serious way uh, issues like justice and um, race and sort of these topics that we need, you know, to have to, to have art uh, engaging. Um, so whether you're Jordan Peele making horror movies um, like Get Out or Us, um, you know, or um, Ari, I forget what his last name. He made uh, Midsummer, and mm. I do not recommend that movie. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like it's exploring gender and, you know, different things. So because of that dynamic, because Hollywood is, you could call it woke, but <laughs> Hollywood is definitely like more socially conscious and wanting, wanting to like produce um, films that are kind of advocacy for whatever. Yeah, it does make it, it makes it easier, I will say this, it makes it easier for Christians to justify watching a lot more. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I actually hear this uh, when I teach classes at Biola, I teach a faith and film class. This is a Christian college. My students are like the cream of the crop evangelical kids. But when I ask them like, so what's like a, a really good theologically meaty movie that you've seen that like has important issues, like some of the answers they give, I'm like disturbed because it's like, <laughs> it's like some like very problematic movie that I would never recommend to any Christian. But when they articulate why they like think that this movie is so valuable, it's something like it's raising important questions about like gender and sexuality and justice. Um, and I think this is Gen Z's thing, right? Mm-hmm. Gen Z cares about like the socially conscious um, conversation. And so, yeah, I've seen it happen where Christians justify like, I love this film because it raises, you know, these questions and it could have the most egregious content in it. Um, and it could be very explicit and it could be advocating really problematic, like moral messages, but because it's woke, because it's, it seems to be advocating for some, you know, marginalized group or some timely um, topic in culture, they justify it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, I, but I think we have to be really careful with that as Christians because um, there, there's a lot of well-meaning, sincere advocacy films out there that are really terrible mm-hmm. in terms of their theological ideas and very unhelpful. So uh, yeah. that's why we have to be just very critical viewers as Christians. Yeah, for sure. And to me, it seems like there still are those filmmakers that want to deliver a message and they care about their craft. At the same time, they're also okay with exploiting various, you know, aspects of their film. So they Absolutely. still have some of that, yeah. some of that yeah. content. It's, it's like the weird uh, paradox of the Me Too movement. <laughs> and this could be a whole podcast. I'd love yeah. to talk about this. Like, but the whole Me Too movement has been so interesting to watch in Hollywood because it's basically on one hand, Hollywood is saying like, we have demeaned and disrespected women for way too long and that's got to stop, right? Time's up on that. But at the same time, Hollywood is still <laughs> the chief purveyor of sexualized female bodies in mm-hmm. terms of movies and, you know, explicit nudity and sex. And so it seems like a cake and eat it too sort of thing. Mm-hmm. How can Hollywood on one hand be woke on gender kind of equality but at the same time they're not stopping um in terms of that aspect of um their reputation as trying mm-hmm. yeah. out this kind of sexually libertine content yeah and it seems like one way maybe they're trying to balance it is by showing more male nudity as well i know there's some uh yeah. conversation about the best pictures this year yeah, and yeah. contained a decent amount of male <laughs> nudity so i don't but know that if seems like such a, that seems like such a twisted way to like totally to address one wrong <laughs> to just kind of even it out with another wrong yeah. like, <laughs> it's so twisted yes for sure well i'd love to know too just as you write you know as you engage the culture um there's those pockets of Christianity that, that, that hate that and that want to push back. And, and, um, you know, there, there's, again, there's so much that could be discussed w- with this, but I'm just curious, what would you say some of the, 
the most consistent pushback you get? What's maybe, uh, you know, the, the emails you receive they're they're typically honing in on, on this. What would you say that is? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there tends to be a couple main like categories of criticism. Um, one is basically like that whole realm of pop culture isn't, it's just not, there's no gospel there. Right. Like, so to even suggest that like there's the gospel should be engaging that, or that there's, there's, there's a conversation to be had there is just so, um, distasteful to some people mm-hmm. that, um, so, you know, when we, when we review at the gospel coalition, like a Disney movie or like Spider-Man or, you know, Batman or some of these like popular movies, there'll be a lot of comments that are like, ugh, like there's no, like, there's no gospel approach to this. Like why are Christians trying too hard? Like, just let it be a movie, let it be entertainment, like let it be two separate spheres, right? And my response to that is is like um, the slogan of the Gospel Coalition is the gospel for all of life, right? Like as Christians, it's not healthy to just seg- segregate, you know, kind of cordon off theology and our faith over here and everything else in life over here, like our job, our family, our um, our engagement with pop culture, like that's just not healthy, right? If we are followers of Jesus, if this is our identity, if this is our, um, if this is our um, faith in the most important sense, like it should, it should in, infiltrate into all aspects of life, and it should be the lens through which we um, understand all aspects of life. So I really, yeah, I really don't like that perspective of just like close off the conversation there shouldn't be any like christian engagement with pop culture so that's one one like common criticism i get um the other one is probably just the like um why would a christian ever watch anything with nudity or like Mm -hmm. you know how how can you in good conscience write a movie review for the gospel coalition knowingly when there's like um sex or nudity in there mm-hmm. um and that one i think I, I i understand more and i have more respect for that because i worry about that too and i i would say the vast majority of my reviews and recommendations um, for the gospel coalition are things that are without that right like it's it's so rare that i w- will even recommend a movie that has that has uh, nudity in it mm-hmm. uh, because I just, I just feel like it's not worth it. It's not worth making anyone stumble or making, you know, um, yeah, just creating opportunities for sin. It's just not worth it. Even if it's a movie that I found a lot of value in or a TV show that had, has a lot of common grace kind of, um, virtue in it. Um, so for the most part, I just avoid it altogether. But there are like there are times where I I feel like something is so excellent and praiseworthy on so many levels that it's it's worth kind of recommending with a caveat. Um, mm-hmm. And I always have a caveat 
in my movie reviews that links to that article, um, mm-hmm. should I watch this? And I'm basically saying like, hey, I, this is not a blanket recommendation for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like you need to do the due diligence of researching the film and the content for yourself and, and evaluating whether um, it's something that you want to expose yourself to. But um, but for the sake of um, having a Christian voice in the conversation with some of these important shows and some of these important movies, because frankly, like there's a lot of um, theological conversation happening in some of these sh- shows and um, movies um, that it would be a shame for there to be no theologically informed Christian voice present to kind of tease out the good and the bad and the kind of fuzzy. Um, so um, that's what, that's how I would respond to that. Like for the most part, I agree. It's not something I want to recommend, but um, I don't think it should be off the table as, as an, as something that Christians should never engage in uh, mm-hmm. because these are shows, these are, pieces of pop culture that our kids are watching and Mm -hmm. lots of Christian young people are watching anyway, no matter what we say. And I would rather there be an article that a 16 year old could Google and find their way to the gospel coalition article about such and such movie or show. And it it brings, it sheds light, um, helpful, edifying light. Um, and, and teases out kind of the theological messages, whether good or bad in the, in the film or the show. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have that than to have nothing, you know, no valuable um, Christian engagement with that, with mm-hmm. that piece of pop culture. So. Yeah, definitely. And like you say in, in your article, that it's kind of it's a danger to the state of our our souls as well as our witness to the world when we underthink you know aspects of of culture. Um, but then you also talk in the article, you know, what about overthinking things? And so I'd I'd love to maybe swing the pendulum a little bit and just say, you know, can we just watch movies to to escape and to just kind of go into the world and kind of quit thinking about the brokenness of the world for a while and and kind of even though it's impossible to disengage our brains from it uh, completely. Um, but just what, what would you say to that to kind of the danger of overthinking? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think there is a legitimate danger there. And, um, and I think that it's wrong to, to write off escapism entirely. Um, you know, I, maybe in my younger days when I was more of a like hard, hardcore, like film critic who like thought overthought everything I would have been, I would have, <laughs> pushed back on escapism a bit more. But um, as I thought about like um, Sabbath, for example, like God created a world with rest. He wants us to rest. Like in a sense, he wants us to be able to have space in our lives where we, we kind of rest our brains uh, and our bodies. And um, I think the arts and leisure, whether it's, you know, watching sports or just playing in the backyard with your kids, or watching a movie just to kind of relax, that can be part of that. It can be part of our practicing Sabbath. So, um, so yeah, I think there's there's definitely a way to overthink, you know, pop culture. It doesn't all have to be like uh, a serious discussion, theological discussion. Like, you know, 
watch Encino Man and have fun, right? <laughs> you know, watch watch a, a, an old musical where it's just like beautiful song and dance numbers. Like, and there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty to like stories and narratives and um, pop culture that is is not important. And it's just fun. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of extravagant. Um, and and I actually, I wrote an article a few years ago for the Gospel Coalition called In Defense of Irrelevant Films. And it was around Oscar season. And I was just kind of, I was wrestling with how annoying it was that like only the most important films or like woke films get nominated these days. Mm-hmm. Like, there could be an amazingly made film that just doesn't have like an important message. It's just a great story and a great um, artistry on display. Um, And those movies don't get celebrated. And I was lamenting that because I actually think from a Christian perspective, again, with the Sabbath and that the whole theology of beauty and rest, like we should actually um, have a place for, for art and entertainment that is just um, it's just kind of a celebration of the abundance of, of the world that God made. And it doesn't have to be advocating for some like, you know, important cause all the time. It, mm-hmm. it, can, it can just be, um, you know, shedding a lot, shedding a, the light on the, the beauty of the world God made. Um, and that's a good thing to experience. Yeah, for sure. Brett, look, I know we're about to start wrapping this up. Um, a question I wanted to ask is I know you, you like to read a lot. I think I've heard that from another interview and, uh, there are just, there's just so many hours in the day and you cannot read everything every year. Well, I kind of wanted to ask about applying this to, to movies. How do you decide what you watch? Um, you know, every year, I mean, there, there are things that you just cannot watch and, and do you have a system to try to say, okay, well, I'm just kind of pushing these to the side. These are the ones I want to focus on. How do you go about trying to determine what all you're going to watch? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have the luxury of like, I'm not, I'm not the type of film critic that like only does film reviews. Like some film critics have to watch everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would hate that because it would mean I'm like watching four movies a week and a lot of them are terrible. So (laughs) I'm in a position where I get to choose what I watch and only write about the things that I want to write about. Um, And so the way I narrow it down is usually just like, well, for one thing, like anything that is in that clearly unedifying category where it's just like not going to be good for my soul to watch. That's just like, okay, that's a whole category of movies that I'm not going to go watch. Um, and then there's a whole category of like, um, just kind of like ho-hum, like, you know, like mediocre reviews. It's like entertaining, but it's not going to add any like nutrition to your life. Um, like I would all occasionally like watch those, but I tend to just deprioritize that Mm -hmm. category. So the ones I focus on are the ones that there's critical kind of consensus around. So I, I pay attention to like Rotten Tomatoes um, in terms of looking at the movies that are coming out and what other critics are saying. And is there kind of critical buzz around that? Um, those are the ones that I prioritize watching. Um, and then because I write for the Gospel Coalition, which is 
coming at movies from a theological standpoint. I also like look for movies where there is likely to be some sort of like theological uh, component. Um, so movies that are, that seem to be like asking questions or wrestling with topics of spiritual significance. So, and that's a broad category because mm -hmm. in some sense, almost every movie is, okay. is asking questions about um, spirituality and like joy and happiness and what it means to be human. Um, but I tend to focus on the ones that are in that bullseye of like, um, there's, there's some good critical um, acclaim. They seem to be like asking good questions. There may be something here that I can um, engage as a writer. Um, so that's, that's, that those are some of the criteria uh, mm -hmm. that I, that I use to narrow it down, but I still, okay. watch, I still probably watch 60 films a year or something like that. Wow. That's a good bet. Um, last question. What's the best movie that you've seen recently? It does not have to be one that was released in 2022, but just the best movie you've seen recently. Yeah. Um, there's a movie that just came out, uh, a couple of weeks ago called after Yang. Um, it's Colin Farrell is the star. It's kind of a sci-fi like set in the near future, um, movie about a family that has like a, a robot, um, basically in this future world, um, it's not uncommon for any given family to have like an, an organic child and then like a, a robot child who they hmm. buy to be like a playmate for, for their children. And so this is the story of like um, a family where their robot child, whose name is Yang, um, basically like short circuits and stops working and <laughs> they have to like get rid of him. And it's just kind of the fallout for the family uh, when they have to deal with that. But it's just a really thoughtful um, exploration of lots of things. Um, mm. the, 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 the movies like that, like sci-fi movies where like artificial intelligence and robots are involved, it's just really good fodder for asking questions about what it means to be human and mm -hmm. what does set us apart as image bearers of God from something that is man created machine like mm -hmm. these are very live questions in our culture right now with science and technology advancing so much so i actually really love movies that are leaning into that another good one that came out recently is called swan song it's on uh apple tv plus and it's a similar like set in the future um sci-fi movie where um basically there's there's a company that allows terminally ill people to create a clone of themselves without their family knowing so that if rather than having your family go through the grief of losing you, mm. um, you can kind of shield them from that by secretly replacing yourself with your clone and your family will never know any different. So, uh. so um, disturbing concept, but again, asking some really good questions about what it means to be, to be human. So mm -hmm. there's two for you after Yang and Swanson. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and like you said, I mean, it's 
shocking how hard it is to to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? How, how this culture is just making that such a difficult question for us to wrestle with. But those are some some good recommendations. And like you said, just that that film can help us uh, wrestle with that on a deeper level so often is just a, a grace from from the Lord. Look, Brett, you've taken a lot of time uh, to come on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it, and we, we wish you well with uh, the newborn uh, coming along and, and hopefully have you back on before too long. Yeah, thanks so much, John. Without money, oh, come and feast without.